If you have your Bibles this morning, would you find in your Bibles 1 Peter chapter 5? And I'm going to look at a text that hopefully will encourage every person here, no matter who you are, no matter what's going on in your life. Because, see, we all come from different walks of life, and we all have different things that are going on. And when you came in this room, though you try and I try to center our minds on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's usually something else kind of uh, buying for our attention and shouting in our hearts. And I want us today to think about what Jesus has to say to us. And before I get into the message, I want to say a couple of things. Um, uh, first, when I walked in today, I can't tell you how encouraged I was by the spirit that's here. God has blessed this congregation with a warmth and a joy, and it is evident. It is evident because you can do a lot of things in life without joy. You know, it's I owe, I owe. It's off the work I go. But you cannot do ministry apart from the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And so, uh, man, walked in and, and what, a, what a joy. Um, this, this is my wife, Leslie. If you have never met her, she is amazing. We've been married for 25 years. And we, this year, all right, this uh, week, I should say, have an 18-year-old uh, turning 18. So it's crazy. So all you parents, when people tell you, hey, your kids grow up fast, you go, okay, whatever. It happens faster than you can imagine. And the reason I tell that story is because I can recall several years ago, about four years ago, us talking to Hyde Park with a rich history of gospel-centeredness about the possibility of partnering and beginning anew. And it wasn't an easy process, but no doubt God has blessed that process. And then God has brought you an incredible family, the stewards here. And Jimbo's preaching three times this morning over at uh, our campus, so pray for him, all right? Uh, he asked me, you think I'll get it right at the third service? I said, sometimes at the third service I forgot what I'm supposed to say. You think you get it right in the third one. But pray for him, and God brought you, uh, brought you a man. And, and then beyond that, the stories of redemption are absolutely amazing, right? God has redeemed lives and redeemed families, and he is in the redemption business. Um, a lady asked me, I was sharing Jesus with her not long ago, and she asked, well, what, what do you like about being a pastor? And I said, it is seeing people's lives changed. And I, I don't have the opportunity or the ability to do that, but I do have the opportunity and the ability to present Jesus, and he changes lives. And so let's get in the Word of God today and look at First Peter chapter 5. And I want to talk to you today about what it means as a church to be exhorted in how we are to live in this world, how we are to live in this world as a church. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to read um, pretty much the entire chapter except for the last part, which is the uh, salutation and, and the, the end. Uh, but I want, I want to read the beginning of this all the way through verse 12. So if you have your Bibles, would you stand and let's read this together. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So Peter writes first to the shepherds, to the pastors. He calls them both shepherds, pastors, bishops and elders in our church we have we have those men we have some that are elders who are on staff and 
feel called full-time, and we have elders that are on staff that are not full-time and not remunerated by the church. They do it in a volunteer fashion because they've been called. And Peter says, this is the right model. This is the way in which we should have leadership seen in the church and then fellowship after that. But notice verse 4. The reason that these men ought to be encouraged is when the chief shepherd appears, that means that there is one shepherd of the church, and his name is, help me out, Amen. Jesus is the shepherd of the church, and when he appears, and everyone say, even come, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because what? He cares for you. Let me stop right there, and we'll just jump into this. Thank you. You may be seated. And would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the word of God that is forever, never-changing, authoritative, and it came from your spirit to us. And Lord, I ask that we would today hear with spiritual ears and see with the eyes that you give us insight into your word, insight into the truth, and that we might worship you in spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Peter exalts the church and he exhorts the church. He does both of those things. He exalts the church because they belong to the chief shepherd. He exhorts the church because they are going through difficult times. If you had maybe a phrase that you would uh, identify First Peter with, it would be a church going through a fiery trial. Anyone gone through a fiery trial in your life? Conflicts are all around us. There was a guy that went to the doctor, and he said, I don't know what to do. I'm so stressed out. The doctor said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take up golf. I want you to take up golf. He says, I've got enough stress at home, enough stress at my job, that I don't need a hobby like golf because I get stressed out on the golf course. And so the doctor said, no, you don't understand. I want you to play golf, but I want you to not use a golf ball. And so the guy thought that was strange, but he tried it. He went to the golf course, and he swung without a golf ball. And the ball went straight down the fairway, the farthest drive he'd ever hit in his life. He parred the first hole. He couldn't believe it. He was having such a good time on the fourth hole. And the guy watching this, observing no ball, asking, man, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, I'm, I'm stressed out at home, at work. And so my doctor said, play golf without a golf ball. Man, it is amazing. I'm, I'm one under par. So the guy says to him, well, man, that sounds wonderful. Can I join you? So they go all the way back to the first hole. And they begin playing, and they get around to the 18th hole, and they're having a great time, no stress whatsoever. On the 18th hole, they both hit perfect drives in the middle of the fairway, and then they realize they're tied. And so the first man walks up, hits his ball, and he goes, can you believe it? Can you believe it? It's going towards the green. Can you believe it? It's going towards the cup. It's in. Oh, my soul, I hold it. The other guy goes, well... Too bad because you hit my ball. <laughs> the reality is in life, uh, you cannot avoid conflict. You can't avoid conflict. And you can't avoid the kind of conflict that brings anxiety to your life. And oftentimes, that anxiety is brought on because of our own flesh. Sometimes it's brought on because of the devil himself or the world in which we live. And Peter deals with all of those things in First Peter, but especially as he exhorts the church in chapter 5. He says, don't be anxious. Now, I know you've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and you just heard how that Jesus said, don't be anxious about anything. And Peter is saying the same thing. 
You can overcome. You can have victory over your anxiety, over the flesh. You can have, he's going to talk about an adversary that roars like a lion, and he's seeking whom he may devour. But Peter says, you don't have to fear him. You have the ability to overcome the, the wicked one. And then he says, you're going to suffer in this world. And everyone who's been alive for any amount of time realizes this, the world will bring in our lives suffering. But in the end, we have the ability through Jesus Christ and his grace to overcome even our adversities. So here's the message this morning. We're overcomers. And we have the ability to overcome our anxiety, our adversary, and any adversity that comes our way. So let's look in this text beginning in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore. Do you see the attitude all of us are to have? We're to have an attitude of humility. That means that we are not to, as Paul would say in Romans 12, 3, look on ourselves more highly than we ought. Humility is not looking down at yourself. It's not having a poor self-image. It is instead of having a high, high view of God. And a high view of God puts us in the right place. It gives us the proper perspective of ourself. So Peter says this is an attitude that all of us have. It's humility. You will not be an overcomer if you're not willing to put yourself under. Do you see this? So humble yourselves, and then notice the word, therefore. Therefore. Now, if you ask yourself this question, it's an important question. Whenever you come to the word therefore, therefore is based on what's said previous or prior. Therefore, what happened before? Well, look up in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger. Now, when Peter's talking to the younger, he may well be talking to youth. He may be well talking to those who are adolescent in their life. But more than likely, he's addressing those who are young in the faith. Young in the faith. Submit yourselves, he says, to the elders. Be subject to those who are in leadership. Why? Well, because if you do that, you are hum- you're clothing yourselves with humility, and you're giving God the opportunity to give you strength through his grace. But if you remove yourself from out from underneath authority, you remove yourself out from underneath the very presence of God's ability to protect you or willingness to protect you. Let me put it this way. How many of you have children or you've raised children? And when your children were in your care, they, they were under your roof. They, at times, they, they had to be disciplined. Anybody ever have to discipline your children? And why would you discipline your children? Did you discipline your children because you were angry? Well, maybe that might have been an emotion that you had. But if you're a believer and you're trying to raise your children up in a gospel-centered way, you say to them, when you obey mom and dad, you are obeying who? God. And when you disobey mom and dad, who are you disobeying? The Lord. Why is that an important lesson? Because we are stewards, even in parents, of our children. They belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day they'll be out from underneath our roof and they'll be on their own, but they'll still have responsibility to the Lord God. So we train them up that way and we say, now, now as you honor your mother and father in the Lord, in the Lord, what are you doing? You're putting yourself underneath the authority of God, not just your parents, but God. But when you decide you want to move outside the authority of your parents, you are moving also outside of God's protection in your life. Mom and dad are here. We're not perfect, and we don't have it all together. But we've been charged with the responsibility of holding you accountable before God. Parents, that's why we discipline our children. So in the same way, in the same way, Peter says, 
you ought and I ought to humble ourselves before those who are in authority. He says, likewise, likewise, pointing back again to the elders, that each of us put ourselves in the place of submission to those who are over us. This is not an easy task. It's not something we like to do, especially when we ourselves may be in a situation where those in authority over us do not have as much education, experience, or know-how. But when you're at your job and you're in a meeting and you are subject to a boss, to a direct report, you, by submitting yourself, are humbling yourself not to man primarily, but to God. This is why Peter says you and I should, in fact, humble ourselves. And if you don't do this, Peter says, he says you are going to face the hand of God. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? Now, James says the same thing. James says it exactly the same way. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And I would imagine if there was anyone who would have a problem with pride, it would be someone related to Jesus Christ. Like, if Jesus was my brother, I would probably start every introduction of myself in this way. Hi, I'm Scott, the brother of Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you? I... I I want you to know that here's James, who was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he says the same thing. God, he opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. Peter and James are quoting scripture, Proverbs 3.34, that says the exact same thing. They didn't come up with this on their own. The Spirit of God breathed it into them as they were quoting Old Testament scripture. This is a principle, friends. We cannot get away from. We must understand if we want the blessings of God on our life, it will be because we what? We humble ourselves underneath human authorities. So then Peter walks down the line and he looks and he says in verse 6, so once you get this, now I can tell you that as you're doing this, you're humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is what Peter wants us to see. As we are humbling ourselves underneath authority, ultimately we are submitting ourselves to God's mighty hand. And it's not just any hand that God has, but Peter uses an anthropomorphic language or symbol to show that God has ability or strength. God doesn't really have hands. But in the Old Testament we read how that it was the hand of the Lord that led the Israelites out of Egypt, the hand of the Lord. David said, when I was in sin, your hand was heavy on me. I love what Ezra said. The hand of God was good to us. I love what Nebuchadnezzar said, of all people. Who can stay the hand of God? The hand of God demonstrates his power. So in this text, we're, we're exhorted. Hey, be humble. And humble yourselves underneath the mighty hand of God. Why do that? Why do that? Well, in this, you are trusting that God is executing his plan in your trials. Remember that I told you that the overarching theme of Peter is that they are going through fiery trials. They are going through fiery trials because they live in, under persecution. And Peter could take his spiritual binoculars and he could look into the horizon and he could see the wave of incredible persecution from the Roman Empire coming in on the church. 
And he's saying, guys, I know you're in a trial, but you can trust God in the trial because our tendency is to want to wiggle out from underneath the hand of God, away from trials, and live in a comfortable setting instead of recognizing through humility that God has his mighty hand on us and even the trial is God's sovereignty in executing his plan. Do you trust that? Now, here's what Peter says. Know this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God because in proper time, think about that, he will exalt you in proper time. Now, we, we look at time linearly. We look at time from A to B. We look at what time we're supposed to be somewhere. What time will he be finished preaching? We look at time like that. But God doesn't wear a watch. Someone says, well, God looks into the future. And I don't think that you'll find that in Scripture. God doesn't just look into the future. God is not at all inhibited by time. He's not limited by time. You say, well, he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And the reason he's already there. That's hard for us really to understand. It wasn't until... Einstein began studying and then giving his theory of relativity that anyone even began to talk about how that time is not necessarily a linear discussion and space and time are intertwined and Copernicus and Galileo, though they had great study in time and space, didn't understand how that there's a fourth dimension and that stuff way above my head. But what I do get is that God is not bound by any time. So while we're under the hand of God and it feels difficult and we don't want to be there and we want to escape the trial we're in, we want to escape the trial we're in, Peter says don't. Submit. He's got a plan in this trial. And in this time, God is doing what he needs to do. And at the proper time, he will exalt you. That word could be translated, he'll revive you. He'll restore you. Now, no one ever feels that underneath the hand of God is something we don't want to be, a place we don't want to live, I should say. But don't you want the hand of God on you? I mean, when you get up to teach a Bible study, don't you want someone to say, the hand of God's on that brother? When, when you lead spiritually, don't you want someone to recognize the hand of God's on that sister? Don't you want to be a church that it's said in the community and those who come in the doors, the hand of God is on that church? What's the alternative? To be like Samson? To lose all power? To walk outside and think that you could fight in your own ability, not knowing that the Spirit of God had departed? We want the hand of God on us, don't we? And so Peter's exhorting the church, even if you're going through trials and difficulty, recognize that God's mighty hand is on you. Don't try to squirm out from underneath his hand. Don't try to look for solutions. But instead, look to submit. When trials come, we can look for all types of solutions. We can look for chemicals, and we can look for hobbies, and we can look for stuff to buy. We can look for people to hang out with, and we can run away. I've never, never understood it completely. But when people go through the most difficult trials of all, do you know what happens oftentimes in the church? They leave the fellowship of the body. It wasn't, but maybe three months ago, I had someone literally tell me, Pastor, my life is a mess. I'm going through the most horrible circumstances, and when it gets better, I'll get back in church. I'm not saying that being in church necessarily means that you're under the hand of God, but do you see that the, the flesh desires to exalt itself 
through trials and figure a way to warm out of a trial. Trust God at the proper time. It may seem long to you. For Joseph, 12 years in prison, forgotten. For Moses, 40 years in the wilderness. It may seem like I can't grieve anymore. If I grieve anymore, I'm going to die. And you may think, where's the relief going to come from? But God's not bound by time. He's already in the future. He already knows at the proper time when to revive you. So humble yourself at this time and at every time, but especially under trial. God has his hand on you. So then, verse 7, Peter says, because God has his hand on you, even in trials, here's what you and I can do. And I want you to imagine, God doesn't have hands, but if he did, they're mighty and they're covering you. But he also, if you can imagine this, has broad shoulders, and you can cast your cares on him. What are you concerned about today? There's moms and dads concerned their, their children will never get married. And when they get married, they'll never have children. We'll not be able to pay the bills. We'll not be able to make it another month. What, my health is not going to hold out. There's lots of concerns. We have concerns. Concerns are not a, a problem, but concerns that lead to unhealthy worry is sin. Charles Mayo said some time ago he never saw anyone die from overwork, but he did see people die from doubt. See, doubt and worry is dangerous. So Peter knows this. Peter knows this. There's an old boy that was talking to his friend. He said, you know, he said, I've lost my job. My car got repossessed last week. My house is in foreclosure. Everything's a mess, but I'm not worried a bit. His friend said, why aren't you worried? He said, oh, here's why. I hired a professional worrier. He worries for me. I don't have to worry at all. He has all that worry on him. I have no worry on me. He said, man, that sounds great. I'd like to hire somebody like that. How much does somebody like that cost you? He says, well, he cost me $50,000 a year. And he said, well, then how are you going to afford that? He said, not my worry. It's his. You know, in the same way, or maybe in a similar way, this is what Peter says. It would be nice to have someone to really be concerned for us so that we don't have to be concerned and we can live carefree. And Peter says, you do. Why are you carrying your cares around when he has the shoulders? He has the shoulders and the ability to carry your anxieties. His concern for you is far greater than your concern for your worry. He says he has broad shoulders. So cast, once and for all, cast. Literally throw upon, get rid of, and hand to God your anxieties. Why? He cares for you. If you don't hear anything else, hear that. He cares for you. I read the story of Laura, who told this story on uh, Wise Women's website. She said that she worked with a man that she started to have attraction to. She was single. She was godly. She was looking for a husband. And she and this man began to talk. And he was an unbeliever. She knew this wasn't God's plan. They were on a work trip. The two of them ended up at a college football game together alone. They ended up kissing, and she went home and thought, I don't know what to do. I want to be married. This is a good man, a moral man. I'm attracted to this man, but he doesn't know Jesus. She went to work one day, and she began to pray, God, I really love this man, and I feel really attracted to him, and I want to move forward in the relationship. She took a lunch, went into a parking lot, 
opened up her Bible to 1 Thessalonians 4 and began to read the Word of God and say to God, God, I know what I want. She literally said, I'm humbling myself to you. And she left that parking lot with no more attraction to that man, trusting God that he would fulfill his ultimate plan. Why? Because there's no better place to be than under the mighty hand of God. He's able to carry your concerns. He's able because he cares for you. Leslie and I were on a date a couple of, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. And uh, we were on the other side of Jacksonville, and I had to make a purchase in the store. And I walked through the, the line, and there was a girl that was probably 18, 19 years old. And I'm going to pay for my deal. And she says, ah, you look like somebody who would get a tattoo. And I thought, what do you, how do you answer that? I've never seen her in my life. She doesn't know who I am. I said, well, how do you know I don't already have one? And uh, she laughed, and I said, are you thinking about getting a tattoo? And she said, yeah. She said, I need your opinion. Again, never met her. What do you think about tattoos? I said, well, I, it just depends on how it looks when you're older, I guess. That's the bottom line for me. I, that's up to you. I don't like to tell you about whether you should get a tattoo or not. But I said, well, what are you thinking about? She said, I want one over my heart, and I want my surname, my last name over my heart. She said, two days ago, I found out that my father, who's raised me and loved me, whom I love, is not my biological father, and I met my biological father. And I, I, I have a father that's raised me. He's the only father I've ever known. I want his name over my heart. And I said, well, you know, that's wonderful that you have a father that has loved you. And I began to pray because Leslie knows, and I, I pray, because she's telling her whole life story to me. We're in a store. I've never met her. People are in line. Her whole life is coming out. She doesn't know I'm a pastor. She doesn't know me. And so I began to pray, God, help me say the right thing because I can, I can sure say the wrong thing. And immediately God reminded me of how he's my father. He is the father of those who are believers. And our names are inscribed on his mighty hand. Isaiah says they're in his hand. And I said to the girl, I believe the spirit of God put on my heart. I said, you know, you have an earthly father who's loved you and you love. And you have a heavenly father. If you know Jesus who loves you more than any man on this earth could ever love you. And he has your name in his hand. And I want you to know that's the case today. Why can I trust God? Because he cares for me. So, Peter says, here's the deal. You and I can overcome anxiety. Because we have a God who's mighty, who covers us with his hand, and even through trials carries us. We can trust him in anxiety. Just a couple things, and I won't go quite as long as I've gone in the first point. But we can not only overcome anxiety. Peter says we can overcome the adversary. Now notice what Peter says beginning of verse 8. Be, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, what does he do? He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now I want you to think about this. God did not make you carefree so that you could be careless. You can cast all your cares upon him, but Peter says, know this, know this, you have a God that cares for you, but you have an adversary that hates you. God does have a plan through trials, so does the devil. God has this incredible plan we've been told all of our life. The devil has this horrendous plan. You think about it. The devil at one time was one of the chief leaders in heaven. Now, he's the chief leader to hell. So Peter says, all right, 
Wonderful. God cares. But never forget that we should be alert and watchful because we have an adversary. He is against us constantly. His name is Devil, Diablos. He is accuser of the brethren. And what does he do? He wants us to doubt the very thing that Peter just said. The devil deals in doubt. See, what faith is for the believer, fear is to the devil. He wants us to fear, to be anxious, to be worried, because we are likely to give ourselves over to temptation. And every time there is a chance for us to submit to God, you can rest assured there will be the devil with an opportunity to not submit, but to take the easy way out. It's the way the devil approached our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to the cross. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. There's an easy way. There's an easy way. You don't have to go the way of suffering. And do you know that's what the devil would say to you? See, the devil thinks and believes that we only follow God because he gives us what is good. He said to God, you see your servant Job? If you would just take your hand off him, you allow me to tempt him, he'll curse you. That's what the devil believes. He believes that we'll only trust God when things are good. He's an adversary, and he roars about. I know what that's like. I was called to preach at a youth camp, and I went to that youth camp late one night, and I was told, you can drive way around, or you can walk through the woods. I said, I'll just walk through the woods. I see where the light is to the cabin. As I'm walking through the woods, I heard something I'd never heard in my life. I dropped my suitcases. I ran through spider webs and limbs. I got back. Everybody came to the cabin. They're like, what's, what's up? What happened? What, what? So, I'm not breathing hard. I mean, don't let anybody in the woods. There's a cougar or something out there. And then everybody starts dying laughing. I didn't know that particular youth camp had a rescue zoo. There was, I was walking through the woods to my left was the lion's cage. And when it heard me, it roared. And when it roared, I ran. And everything you've ever heard or ever seen on National Geographic, or any of those deals about lions and their roar is true. It is the most hair-raising sound ever in the world. I mean, I, somebody else is going to get my luggage then because I'm not going back in there. So Peter, Peter chooses this symbol, this metaphor. The devil wants you to be so afraid that you doubt God. When Peter walked, when, excuse me, when the devil walked into the Garden of Eden, he said to Eve, has God said? Has God said? But here's what Peter says. We can stand firm in the faith. We can resist him by standing firm. And notice this definite article, the faith. I'm not going to drill down deep, but I want you to know that the faith is your faith. Got it? There is the faith once for all delivered to the saints that Jude says we're to defend. Peter wants to be very clear. We overcome the devil with our faith. What is faith? Belief. And it's belief in who? In Jesus. In God. And what he said. This is what overcomes the devil. What overcomes the devil is believing what God has said, believing that God is greater, that his mighty hand is over you. And even in trials when the devil says, Run! said, no, I'll resist. I'm not fighting the devil. I'm not speaking to the devil. I am not putting on boxing gloves against the enemy. I'm coming to my Lord, submitting myself underneath his mighty hand because he's the one who has overcome the devil. And then lastly, 
Notice what Peter says, beginning in verse 10. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory, what will he do? What will God do? What will God do in his incredible grace? He himself, I love this, he himself, Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All of those words, they matter. They have meaning. They all have to do with when things get shaky and things get difficult. If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and you don't flee in fear, but you trust him, your God himself will strengthen you. He'll have you stand. He'll confirm you. He'll prove his love through you. And everyone will know whose you are. In Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to give me five more minutes and I'll wrap this up. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says a lot of what Peter has said here. The writer of Hebrews says no discipline for the believer is joyful in the moment. It's not pleasant, but later it yields peace of fruit and righteousness to those who are trained by it. When we undergo trials, we have to recognize that sometimes that trial that God is sovereignly taking us through and the devil is schemingly trying to cause us to fear and get out from underneath of is something that God may, in fact, be bringing in our lives to correct us. Every child of God, Hebrews says, has the discipline of God in their life. Have you ever been disciplined by God? If you're a believer, you have. God disciplines his children. I discipline my children. Leslie disciplines our, her children, our children. We don't discipline the children down the street. They don't belong to us. If you belong to God, he disciplines you. Why? Correction. Correction. So the Hebrew writer says correction. But he doesn't only say correction. He says so that we also might be trained. And this is more the flow of Peter, that we might train. In other words, not only that we might be corrected, but that we might be conditioned, trained like an athlete, like a soldier about to go to battle, to be trained like a 15-year-old that's about to get their driver's license. We have one of those. Let me tell you what we said to our 15-year-old. Here's what we're not going to say, by the way. When he turns 16, we're not going to say, hey, you haven't driven much, but you're 16, you have your license, a good job, big boy. Here's the keys. Have fun. I would recommend Blanding Boulevard as your first trip. I mean, <laughs> now what are we going to do? We're going we're gonna to put him in the car. We're going to go to a parking lot. We're going to stress him out. We're going to go crazy ourselves, training our 15-year-old. Why? So that when we do give him the keys, he's been conditioned. Not all of the trials that you face, and many and maybe most, are not God's discipline in your life for correction. This is where the devil begins to yell in our ear. Here's why you're going through that. You deserve it. You deserve it. This is why some of you won't cast your cares on Christ because you go, I don't, I don't deserve that kind of grace. And that doesn't even really make sense. Grace is what we don't deserve. So he conditions us and so that we might be competent for ministry. That's the third thing. Peter would say he, he's going to establish you. He's going to make you competent to do his will. And that's what this church is going to face. 
You live in a community that, that needs Jesus. Every community needs Jesus. And it needs to be told about Jesus from men and women who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, who are willing to stick together as a parish and go through difficult times, bad times together, to hold each other up, to love one another, and to say to one another, come the devil or whatever he brings, we are not going to quit. We may undergo the fiery trial of the enemy, but Peter would say, here's what we have to do in verse 12 of chapter 4, entrust our souls to a holy God so that the world might know chapter 2 is all about this, that there's a God in heaven who loves them and a Savior that's paid a sin debt. And if you have a need for salvation, you can have Jesus. He'll pay your sin debt and redeem your soul, and you can be saved too. That's what kind of church we need. That's what kind of church we have to be. And so here's what Peter says. Trust God. Trust God. Trust God in your, in your anxieties. Trust God when the evil one, the adversary, comes against you. And trust God in any adversity. God has a plan. And at the proper time, he'll revive you, establish you. For what purpose? Last verse. Look in verse 11. Why? To him, why don't y'all read it with me? Verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I ask that you have your way, your will in this place. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you this question. As we kind of move into our response time, we're going to have a communion together. Part of the communion illustrates that we have a communion with Christ, a fellowship with the Lord, but also with one another. And so as you think about this message, how do you, how do you see trials today? How, how, does he, how do you see your trials? Some of you are undergoing the heavy weight of trials. Grief of a lost husband or wife. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be recent, does it? We as a church need to be very cognizant that a widow, a widow may be grieving years and years and years and years after that loss. What, what are you grieving? What are you concerned about? And do you see that God has a purpose even through trials he didn't bring on? His mighty hand. How do you see your trials? How do you, how, how do you view God today? How do you view God? Able? More than able? Do abundantly above all you could ask or think? Or, or do you think in your trial, in your difficulty, in your circumstance, you've got to figure out a way. You've got to do it. you just got to gut it out, and you've got to make it your own way. Or do you submit to God? Do you tithe when you, when you, when you don't know where the next paycheck's coming from? Do you obey God? And doing things the right way, even cutting corners, would save you some money and maybe save you some face with your boss? Do you do things by humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God? How do you view God? Is he the one who's protecting you? Are you trusting in something or someone else? And how do you see your purpose? Every person in this room has a purpose from God. And it is to exalt his name so that others might know who he is. So as we go into this time of response, here's what I want to ask you. Have you cast your cares on Jesus? If not, here's what I'd like for you to do. If you say, Pastor, and I need prayer, I'm going to ask you to come up front. 
I need prayer. I want you to just stand right here up front. Stand right up front. I got, I've got cares and concerns. I have family that's lost. I have a situation that I just need. I need the church to pray for me about. I have difficulties that I, I, I just want the church to know. I want their prayers because I want to humble myself under the mighty hand of God and trust him. So would you come if you need prayer? Say, so, Pastor, I need to be saved. The greatest thing in my life right now is my sin, and I need to cast that on the Lord. I need to be saved. I wanted you to come talk to me or Chris. We'll be standing down front. Would you do what God's on your heart to do? Maybe come be a part of this church, and then we'll move into our time of response to the Lord's Supper. Stand up. If you don't mind standing, if you can, you can sit if you can't, if you can't stand. And let's pray together. If you see someone down front that you would love to come pray over, would you come pray over them? Maybe husbands and wives get together. Let's pray together right now.